I think you'll agree with me that we have come quite a long way in regards to daily travel directions. I can remember just about 25 years ago, um, driving with my grandparents to the local AAA office uh, for them to map out and highlight the best route for our trip to Florida. How many of you remember taking a trip to, all right, two of you, okay, good. I guess we were the only ones who needed a map uh, to get to Florida. So we were like, you just go south, man. You can't miss it. Like, yeah. Well, we, we wanted to find the best route. I don't know about y'all. We went to the AAA office. They would highlight the route. Well, 20 years ago, I can remember printing off MapQuest directions for a ball game in North Carolina for my coach. How many of you remember MapQuest directions? How many of you are thankful that we don't have to live off of MapQuest directions anymore? Amen. Just 17 years ago, I can remember sitting co-pilot for our college ministry team with a road atlas spread out in my lap, having to direct and redirect the driver because of road closures, flipping onto the next page whenever we crossed into another state, getting him lost when I, on a, play, on a page flip. That was a very integral moment. Uh, anyway, it did not go well for me. The next summer when I traveled with the group, uh, I had saved that year for uh, an early form of GPS. It was called Microsoft Streets and Trips. Do you remember this? I highly doubt you do. This was so niche and small. It maybe only had a lifespan of maybe six months, but it was a little chip-like thing that you would either put as a suction cup on the outside of your vehicle or, and plug it into your laptop. I had a 17-inch compact laptop that I had up there to telling him where to go. Or you could put it into your handy-dandy Palm Pilot, right? Yep, that, those were not the days at all. Um, I, you do all that, and eventually, you know, you, you, we had to ditch it because it lose sync, signal and everything like that. But eventually, all of us, we turned into the, the TomToms or the Garmins. We'd stick that to the dashboard. And, and now even those devices are antiquated. The majority of us work off of directions from our phones or some of you who are just blessed. You've got it in your car already telling you where you need to go at this point. But the magic of GPS is not without its pitfalls. Some of you could probably insert your own personal testimony to this, but let me give you a few, or at least two, stories of this. These are all user errors when it comes to GPS. I could tell you about the Swiss couple on vacation who wanted to spend a few days in the island of Capri off of Italy's southern coast. Unbeknownst to them, they accidentally misspelled Capri and put Carpi and they wound up traveling to northern Italy. It wasn't until they saw the Alps that they pulled up to their destination of Carpi, um, Italy, and asked somebody where the beach was that they realized that they had driven 400 miles in the opposite direction. That's not a good start to vacation. I don't think it went well for the husband after that. Um, I could also tell you about the 67-year-old German woman who set out one morning to drive into Brussels to pick up a longtime friend from the train station. The little morning trip should have taken her under an hour to navigate the busy streets of the city. However, she refueled twice and even had to stop over and take a nap. Twelve hours later, she finally was tipped off that something was wrong when she was entering Croatia and had driven 800 miles in the wrong direction. 
Like I said, we'll just leave it there with impersonal uh, testimonies. None of you have to testify. The times that you got turned around on your GPS or on your phone, the fact is that we place an immense amount of blind trust in those up-to-date directions that we plug into our phones, and we think very little about the dangers or threats that lie behind a miscalculation. I haven't even mentioned the possibility of hacking. I will later. It's, it, ooh, it's kind of scary. I read a New Yorker article a few years ago that details some of that. No, we, we just jump into our cars and we type in the address to Bucky's or to Pensacola Beach, and, and we don't give it a second thought, trusting that the Holy Spirit and the spirit of GPS will lead us to our ultimate destination to get something from Bucky's. You can get everything from Bucky's, apparently. But this eighth statement in the Lord's Prayer in which we find ourselves this, mor- this morning is similar to that kind of dependency, but I hope you will see it is so, so much more than blind dependency. Jesus commands his disciples to pray in this manner. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a plea that our Father will guide us safely out of harm's way and in his will. Still, if you're like me, it's probably one of the most confusing lines in the whole prayer, particularly when you hone in on the line asking the Lord to not lead us into temptation. I've got questions. I hope you do too. I hope you read your Bible with curiosity. And when you read a line... Stop and ask, what does that mean? Do not lead us into temptation. Why would I ever have to pray and ask God not to lead me into temptation? It really begins an avalanche of very serious faith-depending questions about the very nature of God. Namely, will God, who we proclaim to be all-loving and totally righteous, will God ever lead me to be tempted? If he does lead me to be tempted, how can we still say that he is holy and loving if he is leading us into temptation? You see what I mean? Some of these questions that are kind of we need to grapple with, it gets very deep very quickly. First, I think we need to talk about our relationship to the English word temptation. Temptation. We use it so frivolously in our world today. I say we because I do too. We say things like, can I tempt you with another piece of pie? And I think we all know the answer to that question is always that, yes, you can tempt me with another piece of pie. We invoke the word temptation when we talk about our shopping habits, too, when we're going down the grocery aisle or when we're spending some time at that clothes place, and we are tempted to buy those things. Walking through Bass Pro or Draper James, those are two pendulum swings right there. We are tempted to spend half our paycheck on one item, and we'll use that word temptation to describe that sensation that we feel. 
gluttony and unwise spending. They can indeed really be temptations. But on the whole, we really don't use the word temptation in regard to sin outside these walls. But inside this church, inside the the kind of safety, I guess, of a place where we dissect the Word of God, the word temptation pretty much only has ties to immorality and sin. When we hear temptation within these walls, it's, it's usually in reference to search histories or thought life or relationships. Tempted all week. To really understand this word in the Lord's Prayer, we have to do some investigating into a particular Greek word. I don't want to lose you this morning. I don't want to even come across as somebody who knows it all because I'm telling you I don't. I've just read a few books this week that try to direct me in this way. So just as a way of reminder, it might be important for you to remember that the Bible was written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek in the New Testament. There's a few passages in Daniel and Ezra that are Aramaic, but for the most part, it's Hebrew in the Old and Greek in the New Testament. What we have in our laps this morning is an English translation of that original text, specifically this morning from Matthew chapter 6, the Greek text. It is very dependable. I imagine that we'll have a few questions this morning about can I trust God's Word? And I'm telling you, you can. This is a great discussion to have that I hope that you will have questions about. And I can point you to a few men in this church who could even better explain the trustability of of God's Word that we have in our laps this morning. But sometimes, questions like these about temptation they can be best answered whenever we take a deep dive into the word, into the original language of the text. And so that's what takes us to the Greek word, I might not be um, saying it correctly, pyrasmos. Pyrasmos. Our kids are doing a little work on it in their kids' notes this morning. I checked all of the major translations of the Bible that I know of that are used by our congregants, and not a single one translates it differently. It is correctly translated temptation, pyrasmos. However, throughout the Bible, there are a couple of different ways that we see the word pyrasmos, or temptation, used. Uh, Very often, It fits within our normal use of the word temptation and enticing to sin. We know this. We we get this understanding of temptation and enticing to sin. That enticement might come from within us, the flesh. It might come from outside forces like the world or even satanic power. I think we're probably all on the same page, but I want to make doubly sure we can be tempted by our own fleshly desires I mentioned this on Wednesday during our Wednesday Bible study. I said it this way. We desire to overeat, satisfying hunger with gluttony. We desire to get drunk, taking what is meant to help the body. Timothy tells, excuse me, Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for your belly. And it is now, it's abusing it into intoxication. We desire to have sexual conquests, even when the most fulfilling relationship is within a covenanted marriage between a believing husband and wife. 
you get the picture. We want to feed ourselves, making ourselves king and ruler of our own little kingdom. It might be slander so that we come out looking smarter or cleaner or funnier than the other person. It might be gossip, tearing down another person so that we look like we're standing a little bit taller. We want to be the king of our own world. The flesh works against us. It desires things in our life. The flesh is probably the most successful of Satan's enticements because we are naturally spiritually fallen. We just are. James warns us in verse 14 of James 1, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. He's right. And all of these enticements to sin come from within. Rarely is anyone else but our own bodies and brains tempting us to sin in this way, but there are also temptations to sin from outside of us. There are pressures by others or, as I said earlier, even satanic allurements to sin. Just think about a few chapters earlier in the book of Matthew chapter 4 when Satan tried to tempt Jesus himself in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, Jesus is not being tempted by his own flesh. He is not fallen. He is not sinful. He is, however, being tempted by outside forces, Satan himself in that text. There we've got the picture of this perfect, sinless Son of God enduring pyrasmos, temptation, to pleasure and pride and power. Not a bit of Jesus was infected with sin, yet he suffered through these temptations. That's the first and most obvious way that this word for temptation, pyrasmos, is used throughout the New Testament. The second's a little bit different. All throughout the Bible, we have instances of trials or testings. No one in their right mind would call these sinful temptations, although many in Scripture succumbed to the pressure of the trial and in fact sinned. We think of the stories of Abraham or Job. They fit exactly into this idea of trial or testing. These two accounts, they detail so much more than we can handle in this one church service, but these men endured trials probably unlike anyone else in all of Scripture save Christ himself. God tested Abraham's devotion to him when he commanded him to take your son, your only son Isaac, the son whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice on Moriah. We remember that God stopped Abraham right at that dramatic last second, but the event served as a prophetic reminder that God would send His own Son, His only begotten Son, the Son whom He loves, and He would offer Him up as a sacrifice for sin on Calvary. Job endured so many trials. The narrative of his life really is contained within the first chapter of the book that's named after him. In Job 1, we were reminded of a rich, affluent, blessed man who learned that everything, almost quite literally everything, had been torn from his hands in just a matter of 50 
seconds as one servant comes to tell him that this happens and another while he's still speaking comes to tell him about another thing happened. His livestock, his servants, and his children even were snatched away or slaughtered by natural disasters or marauders who had snuck into their own country. And the following 41 chapters of the book of Job, they simply deal with how Job coped with this immense trial. But of these are tests that God allowed to which these men could have responded with sin, but in these two particular instances, that doesn't mean that God tempted them to sin. Follow me? Trials, tests. God is not alluring them with sin. He's not enticing them to sin. He is presenting them with trials and tests. And they could sin in that trial or test, but these in these two instances, they do not. In fact, this word pyrasmos is used throughout the New Testament to encourage Christians to endure. Just a few weeks ago, our pastor friend Eric Pushman, who is enduring cancer treatments as we speak, preached to us on a Sunday evening, encouraging us from James 1-2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various pyrasmos, trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. This trial is a good thing that James, that the Holy Spirit tells us through James, rejoice in it. That it produces endurance. A couple of months ago, during our D6 Sunday School classes, we studied the writings of the Apostle Peter, who was sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning the Lord's Prayer firsthand. He heard Jesus say, or pray, for them to model after him, do not lead us into temptation. And Peter would, years later, in chapter 5, verse 12 of 1 Peter, he would say, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials. Same root word as pyrasmos. Don't think it strange concerning these trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Again, these trials, these tests, the response of James and Peter, the Holy Spirit weaving his hand through both of them says, Rejoice! in trials, in pyrasmos. Neither James nor Peter are telling us to celebrate enticements to sin. Yes, I got tempted to swindle that guy. That's not a correct reading of the text. But trials, these trials in our lives, they have a way of melting down what doesn't really matter and causing us to focus our attention all the more on Christ. That's why they say rejoice in them. That's why they say don't not expect them. These are things that God gives you to refine your faith so that the dross of this world will just slink away and the pure fidelity, pure faith of life in Christ is standing. So when Jesus encourages us to pray, do not lead us into temptation, Which is it? 
temptation or trial? Do not lead us into a trial or do not lead us into an enticement to sin. I do not know. You're like, throw your hands up, leave. What do we pay this guy for? I don't understand. Can I suggest that it may be both temptation and trial? That the Christian is to pray, Lord, do not lead me into temptation. Lord, do not lead me into a trial. I mean, the word is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, so there is an element of sameness here. If it is, Father, do not lead me into a trial. I think it speaks to our dependence on Christ. What's the opposite of this? Looking at a trial and saying, bring it on. I can handle it. Lord, lead me into this trial. I don't think any of us would ever pray that. But it sure seems as though Peter in the upper room did. Do you remember that? Final hours of Jesus' life with his disciples are, are being spent. Jesus has just told his friends that they will all scatter from him in a matter of minutes. When he is struck, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter, he says. And Peter, who is full of zeal, you gotta love him, but short on humility, he opens mouth and inserts foot. He says, Matthew 26, 33, even if all, looking around at his ten other friends around the, the table there, even if all these are made to stumble because of you, I will never stumble. Bring it on. Or, just a little bit while after that in verse 35, Jesus had corrected him in verse 34, and Peter doubles down, and he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I got this. Jesus, three and a half years in your school of discipleship, I know how to handle trials. I will not fall. Yes, you will. No, 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 no. Even if I die, I will not. Yeah, you will. Peter's thumbing his nose at this trial that Jesus has just said will do a number on him, and he's still holding on to the arrogance of, I will never be made to stumble. Oh, how wrong he was, because within just a few hours' time, Peter would be so intimidated by a little girl asking, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? And he will ultimately curse the name of God and say, I do not know him. That would happen three times. Stephen Davey once wrote, the proud believer is convinced he will never fall. The humble believer is convinced he will never stand apart from the leading and protection of God. We ought to be memorizing that. The proud believer is convinced he will never fall. The humble believer is convinced he will never stand apart from the leading and protection of God. And so we pray, Lord, 
Don't lead me into that trial. I cannot handle it apart from you. Dads, do you hear this with your children? Do you remember when you were teaching them how to ride a bike? Or maybe how to swim? What were some of the requests that your children brought to you in prayer during that time? You're not going to let go, right? (laughs) You're not going to leave, right? You know all the while you are going to walk them through this trial. But there is something to the child saying to the father, don't let me go. Don't leave me. And the father knowing that this trial is good for you. Child of God, whatever is ahead, be it green pastures or the valley of the shadow of death, I want you to hear the words of Christ himself that he spoke to Jacob in the book of Genesis and then to us in Hebrews 13.5 when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't lead me into this trial. I cannot stand without you. We are declaring our dependency on a good father who walks us through trials. Well, what if it's the other kind of pyrasmos, an enticement to sin? This is where it gets hard. Lord, do not lead me into a temptation to sin. First off, if you take this view of this is what this passage is saying, you must undergird it with James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Hear me. God will never tempt you to sin. But if this prayer is, Lord, do not lead me into temptation to sin, it could be better understood. Lord, keep me so far away from sin that I don't ever see it in my life. Keep me from it. Lead me away from it. This is a sheep begging its shepherd to make it lie down in green pastures, to lead it beside still waters, to restore its soul. Shepherd, lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. That's the language here after all. When we pray, lead me. He is our shepherd. Over the course of these last two months in my study through the Lord's Prayer, I've learned a lot about its use in the early church. Not only did it serve as a pattern for teaching, like we usually use it as the model prayer, pray this way, you don't have to use these exact succinct words, but but make sure that you are adoring and then you're praying in fulfillment of the whole Lord's Prayer. They seem to use it a little bit, a little bit differently. It wasn't just on how to pray, but it was also recited often. In fact, we have evidence that it was traditionally spoken amongst believers in the early church three times a day. 
which has authored the common phrase three times a day, thus shall you pray. We've Englishized it, obviously. Statements like that that many of us have probably heard. To recite the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Look, I'm not very keen on rote memory prayer and the standard of, of reciting anything multiple times a day. It, it would be really hard for me to not turn that into vain repetitions that Jesus encourages us not to pray just a few verses earlier. But I wonder what it would look like if every single one of us in this room today, every day, multiple times a day, each of us this week cried out to God, Lord, lead me far from sin. Lord, keep me from sin. I have a feeling that if we made it the wallpaper on our phones, if we pinned it up on our cubicles, if we made it a part of our email signatures, if we prayed it earnestly throughout our day, lead me not into temptation, keep me from sin, I think it would affect us. Maybe even rewrite our brains as scientists are telling us is happening in our bodies. It would make us pause at least for a few short seconds before typing or for speaking this plea to deliver us away or to lead us away from sin really does explain the next line when Jesus encourages us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation to sin and deliver us from the evil one. I, I don't know if it's because I've been thinking a lot about the 23rd Psalm lately. I certainly don't want to superimpose one passage of Scripture on the other, but it seems to fit so perfectly. I hear the sheep's bleeding for his shepherd saying, Save me! Snatch me away from my enemy's jaws! Lord, give me the green pastures. Keep me away from the enemy. Deliver us from the evil one. Look, this isn't very popular, but I hope you know that there is an enemy, an adversary, an accuser that wants nothing more than to devour you. The modern American church that tends to do a pendulum swing when it talks about Satan. We have some who see the devil in everything. 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 But then on the other hand, there are some of us who have pretty much convinced ourselves that he's not really real. Some won't stop talking about him. Others never mention him. Both are wrong. Here, right in the Lord's Prayer, foundational to who we are and what we believe as Christians is this statement of fact that he is real and his desire is for you. He hates, hates, almost as central to the theological fact that God loves, Satan hates. Thomas Watson was an early uh, Puritan writer in the 1600s. He explained Satan's hatred toward us. I've got to summarize it because it's really long the way he says it. He essentially says that the reason Satan hates us is because he looks at us who were formed from a lump of mud and he cannot stand that God has thought so highly of us to redeem us with his own son's precious blood. 
Paul tells us a little bit about what we as Christians have. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Satan knows that passage and it enrages him that we have everything that he once had and more. So he's bent on revenge and hatred and attack. And there is, hear me, there is nothing beneath him. Nothing. In Eden, he was more cunning than any other beast of the field. And in our world, he has proved himself even more ruthless than any of us could ever imagine. He is subtle, able to take the appearance of good and turn it slightly to his own purposes. To go full circle with the whole GPS thing that I mentioned earlier in the introduction, Technologists tell us that the main threat against hackers and the GPS system doesn't come in their ability to break into the millions of GPS receivers on Earth and thousands that are in space to shut them down completely. That's very unlikely for that to happen. The real threat is their ability to go in undetected in the system and just slightly tinker with the coordinates barely. That might not be a big deal to us as we are using ways to get to work on time, but when you think of all air travel and military operations depending upon exact GPS coordinates down to the very last digit, it gets a little terrifying. Satan works that way. Subtly taking the good, altering it to his own purposes. He's cunning and subtle. But he is, as we've read in 1 Peter on Wednesday mornings, he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he has choked down many through all sorts of enticements. Hear me. He delights in divorce because it carries generational scars. He, is, he loves lust because he's seen how such a very private sin can bring such public shame. He is bent towards bitterness because he has watched it gnaw away at whole lives. His preference is pride because it can latch itself into any good relationship and turn it sour. Racism resounds in his heart because it keeps us from seeing others as God sees them. Self-righteousness sends many spiraling down into self-love and self-worship. Drunkenness dumbs us down from experiencing the full presence of God in our lives. Lives. Pornography putrefies God's fulfilling gift of a sexual relationship inside covenant and marriage. Gossip grows and grows until a wildfire consumes friendships. It, it keeps out intimacy and it closes whole churches down. Satan isn't above using any of those tactics. So to all of this, we pray, Father, 
Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Keep us from this one bent on our destruction. And let me tell you, we sang, I'm holding on to your promises. You are faithful. You are faithful. Christian, he will deliver. He will make good on his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul experiencing all of this. He says, Christian, no temptation has taken you, has overtaken you, except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Lord, do not lead me into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Take your hymn book. Number 611. This hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd, Lead Us. It was written, it was written by a woman named Dorothy Thrupp in the early 1800s. We don't have much information about her except that she published the vast majority of her hymns under the pseudonym, the pen name, Iota, which if you know what that means, it means small, nothing, insignificant. It was originally written for children, but her lyrics coming from someone who says, I'm insignificant, are so very significant. And though written to children, they preach a childlike dependency on our Father through temptations, begging for deliverance. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us for our use thy folds prepare blessed jesus blessed jesus thou hast bought us thine we are blessed jesus blessed jesus thou hast bought us thine we are verse 3 thou hast promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be. Thou hast mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse and power to free. Sing it. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Early let us turn to Thee. 
Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, early let us turn to Thee. I want you to hear the promise of God. He hears this request as we pray. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, your word is life and it is truth to we who were once dead in sins and believing a lie. Every child of God in this room, Lord, is working out their own salvation. We are in the midst of sanctification and we are tempted and tried on every side and yet through it all we are crying out our dependency on you to lead us and deliver us. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.